Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. We'll start today's show with the French election. Will populism win or will the center hold? Also, Trump's quest for Middle East peace. Will it work? All that and much more with a terrific panel. Also, from a major bust to a sustained though slow boom. The US economy, former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke gives me his take on where things stand and what the Trump effect really will be. Then, Donald Trump wants to make America great again. But Neil deGrasse Tyson is on a quest to make America smart again. Innovations in science and technology in this century are the engines of tomorrow's economies. America's favorite scientist will reveal just the secrets of the universe to all of you. But first, here's my take. There has been much focus on Donald Trump's erratic foreign policy. The outlandish positions, the many flip-flops, the outright mistakes, but far more damaging in the long run might be what some have termed the Trump effect, the impact of Donald Trump on the domestic politics of other countries. That effect appears to be powerful, negative, and enduring. It could undermine decades of American foreign policy successes. Look at Mexico. For generations, this was a country defined by fiery anti-Americanism. Founded by a radical revolutionary movement, Fueled by anger against American imperialism and high-handedness, Mexico would rarely cooperate with Washington. Since the 1990s, that landscape has been almost reversed. Thanks to intelligent leadership in Mexico City and consistent bipartisan engagement by Washington, the U.S. and Mexico have become friendly neighbors, active trading partners, and allies in national security. Mexico buys more U.S. goods than does China and is in fact the second largest destination for U.S. exports after Canada. Sales to Mexico are up 455% since the passage of NAFTA. The country cooperates with the U.S. on border security, helping to interdict drug shipments and deporting tens of thousands of Central American migrants who aim to enter the U.S. illegally through Mexico. All of this could change easily. Over the last year, as candidate Trump and now President Trump has attacked and demeaned Mexico and its people, the political landscape there has shifted. President Enrique Peña Nieto's already declining approval ratings have plummeted after he was seen as too conciliatory toward Trump. It is now quite possible, in fact likely, that the next president of Mexico will be an anti-American socialist populist similar to Venezuela's Hugo Chavez. Andreas Manuel López Obrador was polling around 10% at the start of 2015. He is now over 30%, the front-runner among the presidential candidates for next year's election. A victory for López Obrador would be a disaster for Mexico, but also for the United States. 
it would likely take Mexico back to its days of corrupt socialism and dysfunctional economics, all sustained by populism and nationalism. Now consider South Korea. Trump's demand that Seoul pay for the THAAD missile defense system, threatening to overturn the existing agreement with Washington, has fueled the forces in South Korea that oppose that system in the first place, along with any aggressive military measures taken against North Korea. Trump has casually delivered a number of slights to one of America's closest allies, accepting wholesale China's claim that Korea once belonged to it and threatening to tear up the U.S.-South Korea free trade agreement. South Korea is facing a snap election for its presidency, and the candidate who is benefiting most from Trump's antics is the left-wing Moon Jae-in. Anti-Americanism has returned to South Korea in force, though not quite as strongly as in Mexico, where Donald Trump's favorability has been recorded at 3%. In foreign policy, great statesmen always keep in mind one crucial reality. Every country has its own domestic politics. Crude rhetoric, outlandish demands, poorly thought-through policies, cheap shots, all place foreign leaders in a box. They cannot be perceived as surrendering to America, and certainly not to an America led by someone who is determined to show that for America to win, others must lose. That's one big difference, among many, between doing a real estate deal and managing foreign policy. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. I'm not planning to get involved in many elections now that I don't have to run for office again. But the French election is very important to the future of France and the values that we care so much about. Arrested looking Barack Obama there in a video released Thursday. This weekend, of course, the French go to the polls for the final round of voting in their presidential election. Obama went on the video to endorse centrist candidate Emmanuel Macron. Macron's only opponent, Marine Le Pen, is a member of the populist right-wing National Front Party. She has had photo ops with Putin, demonizes Islam, and wants France to leave the European Union. There's lots of other news to talk about as well, but let us start with the French elections. Joining us in Paris is Nathalie Nogaret, the former managing editor of France's Le Monde. She's now a columnist and a foreign affairs commentator for The Guardian. Here in New York, Brett Stevens joins us. He has a new job as op-ed columnist at the New York Times. Congratulations, Brett. And Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of a terrific and timely new book, A World in Disarray. Um, Natalie, tell me, what does it say that um, you have uh, um, Marine Le Pen's party, the National Front, which is polling in the 30s. It might actually end up even in the high 30s. Uh, this is a party with roots in fascism, with roots in anti-Semitism. Isn't, isn't that, even if she doesn't win, how disturbed should we be? Yes, it is very worrying, but the fact that she's reached this very level of uh, politics, uh, she's managed to establish her party, the Front National, as an important player in today's France, and she's managed to spread its ideas 
uh, way beyond the initial core circles that uh, that were, you know, uh, at its at its base. She's basically turned it into a fairly mainstream party, and she's tried to detoxify uh, her party by moving it away from overtly or extremist racist statements towards statements that talk about globalization, the, the, the negative impact of globalization, that talk about the defense of uh, lower and middle classes, and even that talk about um, defense of secularism as she sees it in France. And that's a message that, of, of course, the way she reads it targets uh, Muslim minorities. Uh, Richard Haas, when you listen to this, um, do you think that uh, if Macron wins, it is a it is the end of uh, the kind of populist wave. Is it or is it a check on it? Because there's going to be elections in Germany, and it does seem as though either Angela Merkel will win or an even more pro-European uh, social democrat will win. It's not the end of the populist wave. It might mean it's cresting for now. And what it really does is give governments in places like France and Germany an opportunity to get it right. And by get it right, I mean such things as modernize the European Union, maybe rebalance the relationship between Brussels and national capitals. It might, not, it might mean not having a one-size-fits-all European Union, but something with a little bit of tailoring. And then uh, they've obviously got to get their domestic economies going, and particularly France. So it's an opportunity. It's almost a breathing space. But if after several years, President Macron cannot deliver, and the French economy is drifting, and millions of people... Uh, are unemployed and you have continuing violence, then I don't think we've seen the end of populism or nationalism in France. It's just that. It's a respite, but I really hope that the French take advantage of it. But I think we should also point out that assuming Macron wins, and my fingers are, all my fingers are crossed there, that's also a revolution. France is going to elect, uh, or should elect, an investment banker. Uh, this is in a, worked for the Rothschilds. Worked for, for, for the Rothschilds, and who's speaking about the need to cut corporate tax rates, to reform the social pension system, to cut the size of government. Something like 57% of French GDP, last I checked, goes to uh, goes is government spending. It's by far the most in the OECD. And so the fact that France is actually prepared to go for this kind of, if not Thatcherite, then Blairite treatment of the economy shows some real maturity on the part of the French. Um, Natalie, let me ask you what this says about uh, the very strange but very warm relationship between Le Pen and Putin. Um, because that, you know, how did that play? Do the French like the idea that Le Pen was that pally with, uh, with Vladimir Putin? I, I don't think so. I, uh, Putin is not a popular uh, figure in France. Uh, uh, his regime does not have a positive image at all in France. I think what Le Pen was trying to play on was um, uh, the kind of image of a strong man to try to benefit herself from that image of uh, a, a strong leader and to show that she did have some kind of international dimension to her. Not that many foreign leaders wanted to appear publicly with her in, in, during this campaign. She went to uh, one African country and she went to Moscow. But remember when she went to Trump Tower, she did not get a meeting with, with Donald Trump uh, during that campaign. Um, when we come back, much to talk about Trump's foreign policy, but also the dust-up Brett Stevens caused with his first column for The Times on climate change. And we are back with Natalie Nugarid, Brett Stevens, and Richard Haas. 
On to other news, Richard. Um, Donald Trump says he met with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, and he said he's going to do Middle East peace, and it's not very hard. You've been trying to do it for 30 years. Um, Clearly. Uh, not just me, but people like Henry Kissinger, Jim Baker, and, uh, and a few others. Yeah, two things surprised me. One is the sense that it's not that hard. Uh, the seduction of the Middle East peace process seems to have lost very little of its uh, allure. And the other is the, the prominence the, the Trump administration's giving it. I mean, I'd say two things. One is I think they're extremely unlikely to make progress. Uh, you don't have leadership on either side that's willing and able to make the sort of necessary compromises you need. But for, imagine I'm wrong. Imagine they could make significant uh, progress. It wouldn't affect what's going on in Syria, in Libya, in Yemen. What's so interesting is how the Israeli-Palestinian issue has evolved into something of a local dispute obviously of great importance to Israelis and Palestinians. But the old phrase for you, the Middle East peace process, it is not the Middle East peace process. It is the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And again, I simply don't think it's ripe. I simply don't think it's poised to make real progress. I'd actually think they'll be lucky if we avoid backtracking, avoiding, say, a major piece of violence around the holy places of, of, of Jerusalem. Indeed, it's going to be a big issue for Mr. Trump, whether he goes ahead with his campaign pledge of moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, because that could risk being a spark that could actually make a bad situation yeah. worse. And there's a lesson here for some of my uh, friends on the pro-Israel right who supported Trump during the election and who imagined that he would be the best thing that ever happened to Israel with promises to move the uh, U.S. Embassy to uh, uh, Jerusalem and take a radically different approach from the Obama administration. So far, what we've been hearing from this administration isn't so different from its predecessors, at least in this respect. The other thing Trump has done, Richard, has been uh, he's been palling around and inviting and cozying up to lots of real dictators. I mean, he's invited Duterte. He said it'd be an honor to meet Kim Jong-un. Do you think this is kind of, a kind of, you know, as Tom Friedman put it, is he crazy like a fox or just crazy? <laughs> First of all, it's disorienting. I used to think I was the realist in the room, and now we have hyper-realism. You have him doing these invitations to you know, Erdogan and Duterte, CC, and so forth. And then you have the Secretary of State essentially giving remarks to the State Department employees saying that we're going to de-emphasize issues of American values. We're no longer going to put that at the forefront of American foreign policy. The real question is, yeah, I understand we need to have priorities, and with China we need to, say, work with them on North Korea rather than on on human rights. I, I get that, Fareed. But the question is, if you take this off the table, what kind of a message does that send? Are we not encouraging, particularly our so-called friends, to follow policies that will actually polarize a situation like in Egypt, which actually could make Egypt less stable? In a funny sort of way, by not pushing at all, we may be permitting them or encouraging them to follow, follow policies that will actually work against their own self-interest and, as a result, ours. Natalie, how does this, uh, this debate uh, sound to you? Do you think uh, in Paris uh, you expect the United States to stand up for certain values and not just have a kind of realpolitik foreign policy? Um, I mean, Trump's election was, you know, very, very, very bad news for anybody in Europe or anywhere in the world who cares about defending human rights and, and you know, and fundamental values. I do think that one of the outcomes of this French election, uh, if uh, Macron wins, is that there will be a stronger, I believe, a stronger European voice uh, central, uh, focused uh, essentially on the Franco-German couple. 
uh, a stronger European voice on some of the international crises that, that do affect Europe. All right, we have to go, but, but Brett, I got to ask you, your column on climate change caused a, a, you know, a Twitter storm, maybe a real storm. So, you know, it was basically saying we shouldn't be so overconfident and act as though there is absolutely no debate to be had on climate change. Liberals should be uh, willing to Im imagine that they could be wrong. And what a scientist said to me in response was, look, that would be like saying, you know, when you turn a, when you turn a light switch on, maybe the light will go on, maybe it won't, it's still up in the air, that, that, that there is so much overwhelming science in this direction. So that's the pushback I heard from one very intelligent liberal scientist. Well, I don't deny global warming or climate change, and I don't deny that we need to address it uh, seriously. The point of the article was to say that there is a risk in any predictive science uh, of hubris. There was uh, uh, an IPCC, a global cons uh, UN report, at one point that said that the Himalayan glaciers were going to melt within uh, our lifetime. Uh, this turned out not to be true. Um, the the uh, skeptics or the, the genuine deniers obviously pounced on, on uh, this detail. So what the column was an attempt to be was a warning against intellectual hubris, not an effort to deny facts about uh, climate that have been agreed by the scientific community. And I think that's a distinction that I'm afraid was lost in some of the more intemperate criticism, but people who read the column carefully can see that I said nothing uh, outrageous or, or beyond, uh, beyond the pale of uh, normal discussion. And it's always struck me that the best answer to these kind of things is not to try to silence people or drum them out, but to answer them, to have a, a vigorous response and a vigorous debate, which is what you provoked, I think, in that. So I, I was very grateful for it. Next on GPS, why in the world are so many paying passengers getting kicked off planes in America? It is all about the fine print, the economics, and laws. I'll explain when we come back. Now for our What in the World segment. I'd like to again apologize to Dr. Dow, to his family, to every person on that flight, 3411, and of course to all our customers and employees worldwide. That was United CEO Oscar Munoz this week testifying before Congress and publicly apologizing for this. It was the economy class scream heard around the world. Last month, Chicago police forcibly removed David Dow from a United flight after he refused to give up his seat to accommodate a United employee. How is it possible that after purchasing a ticket, someone can still get pulled off a plane. When you buy a hotel room, you don't get ejected from it minutes after checking in. As Robert Samuelson points out in his Washington Post column, airlines routinely overbook their flights, anticipating no-shows, and then paying $800 or $1,000 to a volunteer to give up his seat. Fair enough, we all sign those waivers that no one reads. The problem really is that airlines seem to hold all the power. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 